beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we're reading through the scriptures as a family and we get to these genealogies, sometimes we wonder, should we perhaps skip forward? We're tempted to skip them because we wonder, what is the edification that we can receive from just reading a whole list of names from people that lived long, long ago. Well, this morning we begin the year 2020 with a sermon on Genesis chapter 5, which is a genealogy. It's important to think about what we're doing. Turn for a moment in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord teaches us He teaches us how to look at the genealogies in the scriptures and in every part of the scripture. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3 verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So also Genesis chapter 5 and the genealogies are God-breathed scripture and are profitable. Profitable for a whole bunch of things to make us mature and complete and equipped in serving God. That's one reason to read and to study the genealogies. Another reason we talked about when we looked at Matthew, the genealogy there, another reason is that this is our family history. When we read these names, these are the patriarchs and the great kings that are amongst our ancestors as the people of God. And then look at John chapter 5, verse 39. If you open your Bible to John 5, 39, and see what the Lord Jesus says about the Scriptures. John 5, 39. And he says here to the Jews, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So scriptures are profitable. They're breathed out by God. They're profitable. They're our family history. They also, they talk about our Lord Jesus, about Christ. And let's talk, let's move to Luke 24 now. Luke 24 verse 27. And we'll see the Lord Jesus is more specific yet. Luke 24, 27. And here he says, here, here the, the scripture says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses And all the prophets is a shorthand way of saying the scriptures. And Jesus interprets to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that the scriptures talk about him. And if you look forward to verse 44, he says something similar. And he said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me 
and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Those are the three sections of the Old Testament. So he's speaking about the Old Testament scriptures must be fulfilled. So why should we bother? Why should we read and study and even hear sermons on the genealogies? Well, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're given as God breathes scripture for our edification and maturity and faith and good works. They're our family history as the people of God, and they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are all very good reasons to study and to pay attention and to learn from the genealogies. Now, you remember from last year, the the sermons on Genesis that we began, that Genesis is divided into uh, 10 sections. There's the introduction in Genesis chapter 1, and then there are 10 what I call in Hebrew, toledot, or lists of generations. We've already dealt with the first toledot, Genesis 2 verse 4 to 4 verse 26, the generations of the heaven and the earth. And you remember that the the toledot uh, talks about what fell out, what happened, what are the consequences uh, uh, that that happened after the, the person or the thing named. And this, this first Toledo didn't end very well, did it? It ended in the end of chapter 4 with, with wickedness and with weakness. Wickedness of the seed of the serpent growing strong and God's people weak and insignificant and calling out. The earth at the end of the first section in Genesis is polluted with blood and violence and there is not much hope. And then we get to the second Toledot, the second book of the generations, that's chapter 5, our text of this morning, begins here. And we note that in the first two verses, this section, this Toledot, begins with good news. It begins with grace and, and with mercy. It reminds us of where things have come from. We look around at the end of chapter 4, And we see violence and and wickedness and arrogance and perversion and murder and hurting and hating one another and being hated. And then we think of the words of the catechism. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? And the Holy Spirit in the first verses of chapter 5 says, no. This is not the world the way I created it to be. This is not how I created human beings to act or to live. This is not the life I created you to live. And so Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, brings us back for a moment to before the fall and reminds us of how God made things to be. There are three things that our attention is called to in these first verses. In the first place, that God made man in the likeness of God. When we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, we, we learn that when the Holy Spirit remakes people after the image of God, he makes them as people that live in true righteousness and holiness. So one of the aspects of being in the image of God, or the likeness of God, is to, to live in true righteousness and holiness. That's what God made man to be, and that's how he made them to live. And it's important to remember that of all the creatures that God made, only man is created in his image. And then the scripture reminds us, verse 2, that he created us male and female. 
And we're reminded of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Let's flip back there for a second. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave man a mandate, a job to do. You remember from the sermons in the first chapters of Genesis that Adam was unable to do it by himself until finally the crowning touch of creation happened in the creation of the woman. And now male and female working together in love and in mutual harmony and respect, man can do the job that he's created to do. So that's all built into those words, male and female. He created them, and he blessed them. He turned his face toward them to do them good and to prosper them. So these first verses of Genesis chapter 5 remind us that despite the miserable and horrible ending of chapter 4, this is not the way God made things to be. He made things good, 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 and very good. Now, fallen man loves to say the opposite of everything that God says and do the opposite of everything that God commands. So if the scripture says that God made us in his likeness, arrogant and rebellious man says, no, that's not true. People are made in the likeness of animals. They're just higher, more highly functioning animals, more highly evolved animals. That's who we are. That's all we are. And the scripture says God made man Male and female, that's a glorious and beautiful and holy and useful thing. And rebellious man says, no, gender and sex are just things that basically are constructs that we make. And so we see in our society today, a desire to erase the duality of male and female and to ignore and to basically act as if the difference between male and female doesn't exist. And man, rebellious man, doesn't see that God blessed humankind, that he, that he blessed mankind. Rather, Man says in his rebelliousness, if God exists, what's his problem? Why did he make this world so, so horrible and so accursed and so full of pain? If God exists, he didn't do a very good job. Well, brothers and sisters, whatever God says, rebellious man tries to deny. What, what do we read in the scriptures, if we look at the genealogy, for instance, of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, we read that Adam was the son of God. God gave Adam a name. There's, a, there's an intimate and there's a paternal relationship between the creator and man who he has created, who he has created. The world says no. 
That's not the way things are. The world declares war on the reality that God created. The world says man is an animal. Male and female are constructs. Gender is assigned at birth. And brothers and sisters, sin is foolishness. And we're seeing a lot of it in our days. But at the same time, sin is very real. And there is a brokenness in all the good things that God has made. Also in that idea of sex and gender and male and female and marriage and sexuality, there's a lot of brokenness in that area. And how do we deal with it as Christians? How do we deal with it? The brokenness sometimes is in the physical development of little babies. Sometimes sexual development doesn't work properly. It doesn't, doesn't happen properly. And there are, there are complications in terms of being able to identify in a very small percentage of cases whether a baby is male or female. These are, these are consequences of the fall and of the brokenness of this world. How do Christians deal with this? Well, we deal with it in a calm and prayerful way. If there are questions about sexuality, we have a patient discussion with with doctors and counselors and the pastors of the church, the elders. We look for ways to manage this brokenness in a manner which is pleasing and acceptable to God, in line with his will, in line with the reality he has created. The church does not deny There's a lot of messiness. And sometimes there are questions about sexuality. But we learn from the scriptures that we deal with them in a way which is at peace. We are patient. Maybe you have questions about your sexuality. Maybe you ask yourself about your sexual identity. And maybe you're afraid to talk about it because you hear In the church, a lot of condemnation for the wickedness and the foolishness of the world and the way they they deal with these things. If you have questions, you need to reach out. Reach out to your parents. Reach out to godly friends. Reach out to the, the pastors of the church, the elders. And you will find love and compassion. You can work through the questions. You can work through the issues. You can work through the challenges in a way which affirms who God made you to be and respects the reality of his creation and his good and perfect will for sexuality and for marriage. So God made things good. He made them very good. But now they're broken. And yet nothing is so broken that his grace cannot heal and restore. That's the good news Of the gospel. Well, Adam lives 130 years from his creation, and the day that he fathers Seth is a very different day than the day that he came into existence. Things started perfect, but they got worse every day since the fall. There's no evolution here. There's no development in a, in a positive way. Things are getting worse. Think of, of the first holiday that we looked at. Cain and his line. From generation to generation, sin just festered more and more, and things got worse 
and worse. And so we turn to verse 3, and we see that he fathered a son in his own likeness after his, his image. So what does, that, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit's calling our attention to the fact that Seth is fathered in the likeness of Adam after the image of Adam. What does Job 14 verse 4 say? This is what the Spirit says in Job 14 verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of that which is unclean? We think of Psalm 51 where David says by the Holy Spirit that he was conceived in iniquity and born in sin. Ever since the fall, that is the reality for every child. You see, this is the truth that is built into this fallen world. Like produces like. Dogs give birth to dogs. Fish produce fish. Sinners produce sinners. And so Adam, a fallen, broken, miserable, rebellious sinner, fathers a son who is a fallen, miserable, rebellious, and broken sinner. He fathers a son in his own likeness after his image. That's not the way things were supposed to be. The way things were supposed to be was that the world would be filled with image bearers of a glorious and holy God, living in perfection and worshiping him in all holiness. And we have to ask ourselves, well, where did the image of God go? Is it perhaps the case that after Adam and after the fall, man no longer reflects in any way the image of God? And that's not true. We know that from the scriptures. But there's still something there of the image of God, even in the, the most horrible sinner, even in the most despicable person. If they're a human being, there is some broken, faint reflection of the image of God. How does it work? Well, we might use the analogy, it might be helpful, of the ruins of a mighty castle. You're walking through the mountains, let's say, in Europe somewhere, and you come across this, these incredible ruins. And these ruins are really ruined. I mean, you can't live in these ruins. There's, there's no roof to keep the water out. And so they're kind of useless. And at the same time, looking at these ruins, you can, you can picture that here used to stand a most glorious castle. You see that it has a certain majesty. And you get an idea of what it was supposed to be. That is the way that fallen man reflects the image of God. It's broken, it's ruined, but you can kind of see and get an idea of what it was supposed to be. So he fathers a son in his own likeness, and he lives a total of 930 years, verse 5, and then he died. 930 years. Well, isn't that faintly ridiculous? I mean, we know that people don't live much past 100 if they're lucky. So we're a very educated and sophisticated bunch of people. A lot of people here in this congregation have advanced degrees and we're all educated and, and many of us are uh, very well read. What are we doing gathering on a Sunday morning and reading an ancient text which says that people at one point in the history of the human race lived to 930 years old? The, the world would mock us for that. They would mock us. They would say, well, what are you, what are you basing your life on? on a myth 
for. Well, brother and sister, do you have a problem with this, with 930 years? I mean, Adam had a perfect body. He had a perfect DNA. He was literally clothed in the glory of God. He, he, he was created and lived for a while in the presence of him who is life itself. Now, the corrupting power of sin is strong, and yet the power of life and glory is such that it takes time to get out of the system. And you do see as we read through Genesis that the ages do go down with time. You know, if, you, if your mind kind of sticks on this, if it kind of sticks in your intellectual throat this 930 years, you find it hard to believe. Well, you need to realize that you believe in the Son of God who became incarnate, true God and true man, that he got up from the dead and came back to life. That historical fact is a lot more incredible and hard to believe than the, the historical fact that the first human beings after the fall lived very long lives. So this is our family history, and we read that our first father lived to 930 years. And then he died. Now, did you notice as we read through this genealogy how often the Holy Spirit puts those words in? And he died. And he died. And he died. And this is the only genealogy in the scripture which has this damned phrase in it. This horrible, terrible, cursed refrain. He died. He died. He died. The Holy Spirit is driving home to us the consequences of the fall. Adam lived to 930 years. That's 70 short of 1,000. That's less than one day in the eyes of God. You know, we, we think that 930 years is a long time. I mean, who wouldn't want to live for 930 years if you had good health? But, but it's nothing. We weren't created to live for this minuscule little period of time, less than one day in the eyes of God, we were created to live forever. And so this refrain, he died, he died, and he died, it hurts. It hurts our ears, and it's supposed to, because it hammers, it drives home to us the curse. It drives home to us that the wages of sin is death. But it reminds us, that no matter how attractive sin looks, no, no matter how attractively sin markets itself, it really is never worth it. It brings death. There's a lot of death, a lot of destruction, a lot of curse. Where, where's the hope? Where's the hope in our text? Well, there are three parts in our chapter that I'd like to draw your attention to, which show us that we can have hope in the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of the curse and the death, which is a consequence of sin. Look at, look at verse 3 again. Adam, Adam dies after 930 years, but something happens before his death. What happened before he died? Well, he had a son. He had a son. Someone was born to Adam. Now, this list in Genesis 5 is like a list of kings of, or patriarchs of our family history. It, it doesn't include the name of Cain or the name of Abel because their lines stopped in their death and in their 
curse as far as the, the line of God's people went. But look at verse 25 of chapter 4. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me. That's what Seth means. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. God has appointed. Before Adam dies, God gives new life. And that's important. God is faithful to his promise. The blessed and holy enmity between the descendants of the serpent and the descendants of the woman, he maintains. He says, I will gather, defend, and preserve a holy church chosen to everlasting life. All this death, all this curse, all this destruction, but nothing can stop God's plan. His plan will come to pass. His plan will come to fruition. No matter how much all the demons of hell and all the rebellious sinners in all of history strive against it. The world will be filled with a number which no man can number of holy image bearers born into and prepared for God's service in the context of holy and profound love. Now we read, remember in chapter 4, that the line of Cain was, was strong and developed and arrogant and rich and powerful, successful. We read that the line of Seth, the line of the woman, the holy seed was, was humble, was kind of weak, was prayerfully dependent on the Lord. But already in this second Toledot, and you'll see that next week in the... Uh, or maybe the week after, in Genesis chapter 6. And then certainly in the third Toledot, we see that the line of Cain will come to an end in the flood. But those who humbly depend on the Lord will be saved. We see in these chapters which lead up to the flood and go through the flood, we see the perseverance of the saints, or more correctly said, the preservation of the saints. God is faithful to his promise. The offspring of the woman will crush the offspring of the serpent. All of that's built into and involved in the birth of Seth. It is a gospel proclamation that God gives in the birth of the, the Holy Seed. And that's why every believer in the Old Testament longed to have children. They embraced the gospel that God overcomes death by granting life in abundance. And what was true in the Old Testament is even more true in the New. It's more glorious because death has been definitively defeated at the cross. Every child born is a declaration of victory over the kingdom of death and darkness. Every time a child is born into the church, it's like a it's like a slap in the face to the powers of darkness. It's a proclamation of the victory of the love and the life of God. That's why believers don't look at kids as just another mouth to feed or another expense to worry about. We see children as gifts of God, as part of his glorious plan for a new heavens and a new earth in which there is an innumerable number of worshipers. And so children, whether they're granted by birth or by adoption or even spiritual children that are granted through God's blessing on our, on our witness to unbelievers, each one who responds in repentance and faith, who loves and embraces Christ, 
adds an infinite amount of worship to the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every birth proclaims death has not won. We need to open our eyes. We need to look beyond our little lives. We need to look to our real life, our eternal life, our life which lasts for more than one day. That's what Paul means when he says to Timothy that women will be saved through childbirth. The hands of a woman brought death to the human race, but the hands of a woman cradle and nurture new life which is part of the new and redeemed humanity that God is bringing about. Eve and her daughters cradled their babies in the hope of the birth of the coming Messiah. Mary cradled in her arms the serpent crusher, the Savior. And every mother since cradles in the sure hope of the resurrection and the life everlasting, cradles a child she is preparing for a life of infinite and never ending worship your job sisters some of you are at home with little children and sometimes it can seem overwhelming and you just think surely i'm more than this more than someone that's wiping noses and changing diapers surely there's more to life than this well know this for one it's just a stage it's going to end talk to your older sisters about that but know this you are doing the work of the kingdom of god You are preparing your children for a life of infinite, never-ending worship. You are preparing citizens of the eternal kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And what is definitely true in the birth of Jesus Christ is reflected in every new birth into Christ. Life wins. Love wins. And death loses. That's the proclamation of the gospel in every birth. And then we also see hope in in verse 23 of our text. Verse 23, which talks about Enoch. Now, Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam in the holy line. And you remember the seventh generation from Adam in the line of the serpent. That was Lamech. Remember him? Lamech, the, the boastful, arrogant, murderous, sexually perverse fellow. And from Genesis chapter 4, we we learn that the, the earth is polluted with the blood of murder and sexual perversion. In the seventh generation from Adam, the line of the serpent seems to have reached a peak of wickedness and pollution and rebellion. But in the line of the seed of the woman, The seventh from Adam is Enoch. And what's he doing? Look at this. Twice in the section which talks about Enoch, it says that he walked with God. He walked with God. Now, how did he do that? Was he really holy and really smart and really good and maybe less affected by the fall? Well, turn in your Bible to Hebrews 11, verse 5 for a moment. Hebrews 11, verse 5. How did Enoch walk with God? Hebrews 11:5 By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death 
And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How did Enoch walk with God? By faith. Where does faith come from? It's a gift. A gift of sovereign grace. This was God's work in Enoch's life. And he was taken up to God. And he did not see death. So what's the scripture telling us here? Adam was already dead in the year that Enoch was taken up. Adam and Eve were the only two that had ever lived in the presence of God and whoever had, the only ones who had ever known life with God. And now that Adam and Eve are off the scene, it may be that the, that the seed of the woman, the holy seed, may despair and say, well, is there any way back to God? Is there any way back into his presence? And the Holy Spirit preaches through the life and the translation of Enoch that, yes, there is a way back into the presence of the Father. It is possible for sinners, by the grace of God, to be restored into fellowship with the Lord. Now, how did Enoch walk with God? What did that look like? You know, in our very Canadian way of looking at the gospel, we often think that as Christians, we, we need to be very nice people that never ruffle any feathers and never make any waves. And we just got to fly under the radar and hope that nobody notices us and nobody uh, gets us into trouble for what we believe. That's how sometimes the church is living and acting in our time. How did Enoch walk with God? Turn in your Bible to Jude chapter, or Jude verse 14. It's only got one chapter, so verse 14 of Jude it talks about Enoch, talks a little bit about what he was doing before he was taken up. Jude verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How did Enoch walk with God? Well, one way that he walked with God was that he was a prophetic voice, and he Proclaim the judgment of God upon unrepentant sinners. That's walking with God. It's like our brother, Reverend Wang Yi, in the Reformed Church in Chengdu in China, who was just sentenced to nine years in prison. A prophetic voice. Didn't try to hide, didn't try to fly under the radar. He spoke truth to power. He would have memorial services to mark the anniversary of the massacre in Tiananmen Square. He would speak directly to the president of China who sets himself up as some kind of God and say, there is only one God to be worshipped, and it's not you. And now our brother is in prison because he told the truth. That's the kind of walking with God that we see in Enoch. What's the gospel, brothers and sisters? The gospel tells us to hate sin and to love God. 
The gospel calls us to walk with God. How can we do that? Only by faith. Where do we get the faith from? It's a gift of God. That's our only hope, our only way out. For God to give, for God to grant, for God to act, for God to transform, for God to change things. And then finally, in verse 29, we see more hope in our text. We see the prophecy spoken by Noah's father at his birth. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What is, what is Lamech saying? It's not about rest and, and comfort and, and relief from the ground and from painful toil. Well, to get a bit of an understanding of what he's talking about, we need to turn back to Genesis 4, verse 10. Genesis 4, verse 10, Cain has killed Abel. Blood has been spilled. What does God say? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. When innocent blood is shed, that cries out for justice to God in heaven. What's another consequence of innocent blood being shed? Look at verse 11 in chapter 4. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, verse 12, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. The Bible teaches that when there is perversion and wickedness and murder and bloodshed, that these things pollute the creation. They gum up the works. Things don't work properly. The ground doesn't produce. There's toil, there's pain. Relationships are broken down. The earth doesn't produce the way it's supposed to. The blood cries out. The ground is cursed. The creation groans. Things don't work. It's because of the blood guilt. And what's true in Cain's case is true across the board. Adam and Eve had blood on their hands. The blood of all of their descendants who died. Death, death, death. That's what we read about in chapter 5. And he died, and he died, and he died. And then the offspring of the serpent celebrates this. It celebrates the sin and the murder and the perversion. And so the intricate clockwork of creation is gummed up as if with glue and and filth. It's polluted. It's broken. And there's only one solution. What do you do if you have a a very delicate clockwork that's all gummed up and, and filled with filth? You need to You need to take it apart. You need to scrub it clean. You need to put it back together again. And that's what happens. That's what happens in in chapter 6 and following with the flood. God literally takes the creation apart. He, He moves things in reverse. There's a reversal of creation. The earth goes back down into the waters. And he washes and scrubs away all of the guilt and all of the pollution of sin. And there's hope there. There's hope in the birth of Noah that here will be a new start. Here will be renewal. Here will be salvation. It's longed for. It's hoped for. That prophecy of Lamech is believed, even though the world mocked. But what about us? We live in a time of great blood guilt. We live in a time in which the culture of death is celebrated. There's an all-out attack on life in our very sophisticated and nice country of Canada. Children and the elderly and the disabled are being murdered and 
destroyed and killed and massacred. There was sexual perversion being celebrated. The land, our land as well, is polluted by the wickedness of sin. What is our hope? Our hope too is like Lamech with Noah. Our hope is in a reset, a renewal, a new start. Our hope is in the building of an ark, not made of wood, but an ark made of living stones. The church is the ark that Jesus is building. And the day will come when there will be another flood, another reversal of creation. There will be a deep purifying, not by water, but by a flood of fire down to the constituent elements. God will take this creation apart and scrub it to the level of the very atoms. And then he will put it back together again. And floating above the fiery judgment that is about to take place at the end of time, floating above that judgment, above the fires of judgment, will be those who are in Christ, will be the church of the living God. Christ is our Noah. He is our rest giver. He is our comfort bringer, our only comfort in life and death. In the midst of a world that is polluted with sin and perversion and blood guilt and death and curse, we as the Holy Church of God can find hope in his faithfulness. So let's, let's end the sermon by reading chapter 3 of the second letter of Peter. And you'll see how he pulls this all together. Second letter of Peter, chapter 3. We'll read this chapter to end the sermon. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.